Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hello everyone, my name is Grace and I'm the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe. If you have not already joined us in the cafe, I would like to personally invite you to our community. We have so many awesome things going on this month. We have totally revamped our writing group program to include a writing group marketplace where you can browse open writing groups or decide to create your own. At the beginning of the month, we launched the 500 Club, which is an exclusive accountability group that challenges you to write 500 words a day over a two week or a month long commitment. Finally, this month we launched weekly communal word sprints that are open to all crafters. As of this moment, we have four sprints happening per week and we are ranking out words. If you're interested in joining our community, you can find us online at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for joining us for another week here at the Storycraft Cafe podcast. We have a great show for you today. Jenna Maresi joined us recently in uh, for a live event in the Storycraft Cafe. Uh, Grace and I hosted her and had an amazing conversation with her all about character development. We went really deep on, on characters, and uh, I know you're going to love this. Before we get over to the audio from that recent live event, I talked with CJ Box uh, a couple of years ago and asked him, when you're writing a series uh, with these recurring characters, how do you keep coming up with new adventures to put them in, uh, new situations that seem timely and, you know, have events that really resonate with readers? And he's going to tell us about how he devises a new plot uh, for these recurring characters to get into. So uh, let's hear from CJ Box and then on to Jenna. I always start with the issues or controversies. Um, uh, for, for, I'll take maybe the Joe Pickett one first. Is that I, I generally come up with two or three big kind of um, things that people are talking about, uh, whether they're environmental, um, energy-based, resource-based, culture-based, um, and then do the research on, the, on those particular topics and then try to, in a sense, figure out a way to pull a reader through these big topics in what I hope is a page-turning way. And I enjoy the research part of it a lot, um, like going to the places where the book's going to take place or doing the things that, that happen in the book so that I can write about them realistically. And um, the current book, for example, the Joe Pickett book I'm writing right now, um, I, I noticed, I, I live in the West, and that um, so many of the hunters and sportsmen in the area have really gotten into, you know, super long-range shooting because you can now buy rifles that um, straight out of the box with a very high-tech scope can hit targets over a 1,000 yards away and um, out of eyesight 
uh, and that has changed the, changed the whole dynamics of hunting and, and target shooting. And so I wanted to get into that. I, I was interested. I, I'm not a long-distance shooter, but I went and learned about it and went to the uh, Gunworks facility in Cody where they're making some of these rifles. Learned a lot about it so I can incorporate that into the next book. So that's kind of how I start with the topics and the issues and then, then go to the outline and the plot. Hello, we are live. Thank you for joining us again in the StoryCraft Cafe for another great author chat. I'm your host, Hank Garner. Today with me is Grace, who is uh, the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe, and she's going to be co-hosting with me. And we are super excited to welcome Jenna Marisi to the show today. We're going to be talking all about writing fantasy and different ways that you can promote your work and her uh, her channel on YouTube that has garnered so much attention and so much love. And uh, welcome, welcome to the show, Jenna. Thank you so much. I am honored to be here. I, we're excited to have you. Um, Jenna, before we get started, um, there's a, a question that I've loved asking people <laughs> lately, and it's, it's a fun way to get some conversation started. What is uh, a piece of writing advice that someone has given you that has stuck with you. Maybe it's a great piece of advice and you love, you know, having that to refer back to, or maybe it's so horrendous that, <laughs> that it sticks in your mind, or maybe you've got one of each. Um, oh my gosh. I, I definitely have heard some horrendous <laughs> advice. Uh, the best piece of advice I think is one that everyone's heard. I believe uh, Tony yeah. Morrison said it is, you know, write the book that you want to read. I think yes. that's extremely important. Um, that's something that I tell everyone on my channel. I'm like, just if you're going to write something, make sure it's the book you want to read because writing can be grueling. It can get boring. It can get tedious. And it's going to be 20 times worse if you're writing a book that you are not passionate about, you know, so yeah. make sure it's at least something that you want to read. Also, from a marketing standpoint, you already know there's a target audience because what are the odds that your tastes are so niche and out there that no one else would be interested in reading this book but you? So from a marketing standpoint, it works. From a artistic standpoint, it works. As for horrendous advice, um, <laughs> I have I have seen people say that the only way to create true, you know, artistic writing is by pantsing. And I'm a hardcore plotter. Um, um, I'm a big proponent of outlining. Um, and even then, I am still, you know, aware enough to recognize that just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. So for someone on the opposite end of the aisle to be like, you have to pants. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, like we it's different strokes for different folks. You can yeah. you can. You can admit something works for you and know that it does. It's not universal. So anytime someone says their method is the only method, that's when I roll my eyes and I'm like, just shut up, <laughs> shut up, stop it. Yeah. The, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you you have a wildly popular YouTube channel and um, that uh, and, and you, you have do you post like two videos a week? Is it? I post one video a week with okay. uh, bonus content here and there. So I okay. would say about about once a month, there will be a week of two videos. But gotcha. it's usually it's usually just every Wednesday. 
Which came first, your writing career or your YouTube channel? Um, well, writing in general came first. I've wanted okay. to be a writer since I was six years old. Um, it's literally my lifelong passion. Um, and I created the YouTube channel while I was in the process of um, drafting my what eventually became my debut novel. Um, but that wasn't when I was six. <laughs> YouTube didn't even <laughs> exist when I was six. Uh, that was when I was about 27, something okay. like that. Um, so... Uh, YouTube came a lot later in the process, honestly, mostly because a lot of people have been telling me, you know, I had a blog where I gave writing advice and things like that. And people were like, you give really good advice and, you know, you're really funny and sarcastic. You should make a YouTube channel. And I was like, absolutely not. You know, <laughs> like most writers, I'm very, um, you know, I'm, I'm more of an introvert. Uh, people assume I'm an extrovert because I'm loud. <laughs> not, not the case. That's just the Sicilian in me. Um, but uh, yeah, I was not interested at all. But eventually, you know, long story short, I decided to give it a go, try it out. My goal was 100 subscribers. And now we're at 270,000 subscribers. Yeah, yeah. Def definitely did not expect it to take off. It was literally just, I'm going to try it to see if it works. And it probably won't. That was my very optimistic mindset. Um, but uh, yeah, so writing came before YouTube, but I didn't publish my first book until after YouTube. And because of YouTube and the audience that I had acquired, um, I was able to make writing my full-time job you know, because right, right off of book one, because, you right. know, that I had amazing. this audience right there. Yeah. <laughs> it all actually, worked out. Like kind of going off of that, do you feel like in the balance or I guess, what is the balance of your, your work? Like, do you feel, which do you feel is your day job? Um, for me, writing is always number one. That's one of the mm -hmm. reasons why I only post one uh, video mm -hmm. a week. It's it's recommended on YouTube if you want to make it. <laughs> I'm like doing the air quotes, make it <laughs> on YouTube. You should post three videos a week. Ain't nobody got time for that, especially me. Like I'm, like yeah, I, I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to publish books. The books will always yeah. be my number one. Right now, my books. Obviously, I have my diversified income source. Uh, but of all of my sources of income, the books are the biggest. You know, breadwinners, mm -hmm. I guess. So for me, it's writing first, and YouTube is an avenue for me to um, network with other writers, connect with other writers, and push my books and buy the books, right. guys, check them out, you know? Right. Um, so, so it's definitely, I, I will always make sacrifices on the YouTube end of things in order to make writing the priority. So I have to ask you this, Jenna, because as someone who um, I, I was a writer first and began podcasting about eight years ago, um, did over 1200 episodes of this other podcast that I run. And uh, at, at one point, there, there becomes a time where you start doing this thing to help with the writing and it grows to the point that you struggle to find time to write because of this thing that you did because you're a writer. Um, right. Have you struggled with that balance at all? Because it's a real struggle. Let me tell you. Oh, definitely. Um, on top of the fact, I'm also a caregiver. My fiance has a major spinal cord injury and suffers from CRPS, which is a uh, very severe chronic pain condition. Ow. So when, yeah, it's, it's so much fun, such a delight. Um, but when you combine all those things together, um, there have been times where I've had to take, you know, a long hiatus from writing because at some point something had to give. And obviously his health is going to be, both of our health, that's going to be number mm -hmm. one first and foremost. Um, 
writing is, as you know, is uh, more of a slower source of income in the sense that sure. you're, you're not earning money on the book while you're writing it. You know what I mean? You know, you, you earn the money once it's out. Uh, so if it comes down to supporting my family, you know, via writing or via YouTube in terms of instant finances, it's got to be YouTube. So there have been times where I would have to focus on YouTube and my fiance and the writing would have to take a back seat because that's not really, you know, an immediate earner. Um, and those times are very frustrating, you know, because the writing is what we want to do. Um, but for me, uh, outside of those times, because those are situations that I can't, you know, you're kind of, your hands are tied. Outside of those times, uh, the way I try and create a balance is I basically devote a week every month to YouTube. Um, that week is all scripting my videos. And then I bulk film, which is where mm -hmm. I just film a crap load of videos in one day. It's exhausting. By the end of it, I am wiped out, but I have content for the whole month, you know, um, sometimes, I'll, sometimes I'll split it into two days, but regardless, it's, you know, it's done in a week. And then the other, the other three weeks or four weeks of the month, I can devote to writing, you know, publication stuff, all, all that right. good stuff. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as, as you have learned, obviously, um, there are, uh, social media and, and different sorts of new media that can, can definitely help um, an author's career and can mm -hmm. help with the marketing and, and finding an audience and connecting with that audience. And, and when you go to launch a book, having that audience that, that is a fan of yours already obviously helps. Yeah. Um, you, you are an indie author. Is that mm -hmm. right? You, you publish yourself right. um, over the last 10 years or so. Um, indie publishing has really come into its own mm -hmm. and the the Amazon Kindle and the KDP platform probably have a lot to do with that because there was a, a platform to publish on and a company behind it that supported authors and and you know had built this infrastructure to make it easy for folks to do um how do you feel about the publishing landscape today because uh due to that indie revolution that has happened the uh, the traditional publishers have had to um, finally recognize this other, you know, faction in publishing. And they've been uh, they've had to respond in a lot of ways and, and try mm -hmm. to um, meld their business into the changing um, landscape of, of what people would. The indie publishing has now filtered down to readers and readers expect you know, certain things from. So how do you feel about, you know, from your vantage point about the state of publishing now and the, the whole indie versus traditional, um, you know, uh, argument or mm -hmm. has that has that been settled by now? Um, I think it's a great thing that indie has expanded in the way it has because it gives so many more opportunities to writers who normally would be overlooked, whether it was because of their background, because of their resources. A lot of big traditionally published authors, certainly not all of them, but a lot of big ones, they kind of had connections. <laughs> they had right. way, ways to get in that other people, you know, were just sort of relegated to the slush pile. Um, I think indie offers a lot more advantages to people, especially, like I said, based on your background, but also if you're writing a niche genre that publishers maybe aren't interested in, but there's definitely an audience and a readership out there. Um, so I think it's a great thing. Obviously, the negative side is that anyone can publish. So some sometimes there's 
some not so great pieces of fiction and nonfiction floating around. Um, but usually to that, I say, well, I'm sure you can think of quite a few traditionally published books that aren't sure. the best quality, but they were marketable and, you know, people right. bought them, even though they kind of suck, you know? <laughs> so um, I, I think it's a, it's definitely a, a positive overall impact. I think it's also positive that traditional publishers are finally starting to respond. I honestly think they started to respond too late yeah. um, and, and they're, they're behind the times because I think they were, they were trying so hard to cling to the idea that traditional publishing is legit publishing. You get the seal of approval of saying my work is good enough to be with this publishing house. Um, I think that mentality isn't really working for them anymore because so many indie authors like myself are going indie, not because they couldn't get a an agent or a publishing deal. I it's didn't query. Profitable. Right. I, I didn't query. I, I went with the, uh, the, you know, avenue that was going to make me more money. And yeah. I have a business background, so I knew how to market myself and do a lot of the things that the publishing house would have done for me. I know how to do it myself. Um, so clinging to that idea of there's prestige with traditional publishing, I don't think that worked in their favor. And now they're realizing that that's not necessarily true. And readers don't necessarily care about that. They just want a good book. So personally, I, I think it's a good thing that indie has risen in popularity. I certainly don't think it's for everyone. I definitely think there are pros and cons to either indie or traditional. Um, and it's different strokes for different folks. Um, but I think it's smart that traditional publishers have finally started to respond, although I think they should have started to get up with the times, <laughs> maybe like, five or six years sooner, yeah. you know, seen it as the threat that it was. But isn't that the way that that big businesses seem to always do? I mean, you know, look at the music industry 10, 15 years ago or maybe a little longer when when Napster came along, you know, yeah. you, we started with the, all of the lawsuits and all of that. And then almost when it was too late, you know, oh, maybe we should embrace streaming. This is obviously the way people want to you know, get their music and, and, you know, kind of a haphazard, you know, they kind right. of stumbled into it, you know, and I think it's, you know, again, and I'm not trying to villainize publishing houses. Or of course like that. Not. I'm, yeah. I'm coming at this from, I have a, you know, a business degree. I have a business right. background. I think it, it's a reaction of protecting your profits and protecting, you know, the, what you have built, because when you start to go into different avenues, it might not be as lucrative for them, but it's going to be lucrative in the long run in the sense that this is going to get you a larger quantity of writers, a larger quantity of readers supporting you because you are embracing the the new you know innovation that everyone wants. But I think they have this initial knee jerk reaction to be like, no, this is mine, you know, like this is my method that I've chosen. You know, they're just trying to protect their profits and they're trying to protect their place in the industry. But when you're a big giant, you know, people always want to you know try and make it a little bit more accessible to everyone else. You know, being this big giant in an industry full of little tiny people who want to have their voices heard. It's not a good look, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. One of the best things that I've seen happen in the last few years is that um, authors are now empowered uh, to make the best decision for them and for their book that, that suits, you know, whatever their goal is. And mm -hmm. I, I've got a number of friends who are indie published authors but once in a while, there there might come a, a, a book or a project 
that could benefit from the reach of a traditional publisher, and they'll publish a series with them while also uh, doing their their indie stuff. And you get the best of both worlds. And what I've seen recently is that that authors now have the power, right. and and they they're not bullied into one camp or another. They can they can choose what's best for them and for their book. Exactly. I've been approached by agencies and publishing houses, and I'm in a position where, you know, if it was maybe 15 years ago, I would have to accept there'd be no other better option. I'd be I'd have to accept no matter what the, you know, advance was or even if there was no advance. Now I've I've turned down every option that's been brought to me because uh, what they were offering was worse than what I'm doing right now. And it, it, I'm not against going hybrid in the future. That's absolutely something that's on the table. But in my opinion, it would have to be something that is more beneficial to me than what I've got going on right now. And thus far, I haven't mm-hmm. seen that. And it's nice to be in that level of control where it's like, if I want to say no, I can say no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Jenna, you write uh, fantasy and mm-hmm. dark fantasy with romance and kissing. Um, I've, yeah. I've heard it described before. Um, what was it that that got you excited about fantasy in the beginning? Um, so I've, I've, like I said, I've, I've wanted to write since I was six years old. Um, my earliest inspirations <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, you know, most girls were watching uh, Disney movies. Most girls and boys, you know, they're watching, you know, Little Mermaid and stuff like that. My dad... Instead, he got me into all these classic fantasy movies like Clash of the Titans. It's a good dad. Yeah. <laughs> the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, um, Jason and the Argonauts, The Mysterious oh. Island, which is kind of like sci-fi fantasy. Um, uh, what's that one about the journey to the center of the earth? These are all still my favorite movies. I, I love them so much. And that's what got me into um the fantasy romance, you know, combo. I liked seeing, you know, Sinbad and Princess Parissa. And, you know, I liked seeing, you know, Andromeda and Perseus. You know, I wanted to see, you know, these people heroically battle dangers while falling in love. And I've, I've loved that ever since. It has never died. I am 36 going on six. And I just, I just, I, just, I fell in love with that. And, um, and then it obviously going into reading, um, and this is, you know, no shade to other writers, but I'm an I'm extremely picky, <laughs> nitpicky individual. And I would read books in these genres and be like, this is nice, but I would have written it this way. Like, even when I was like seven, I'd be like, this is how I would have done it, you know? And it would be little things like the main character is blonde and be like, she should be a brunette, you know? And and it just it just became this thing where it's like I was already telling my own fantasy romance stories, you know, in my mind. And then it, it you know, turned into drawing them and writing them. So it's that's it's always it's always been this way. <laughs> So your your first book, The Savior's Champion, and the follow-up, The Savior's Sister, and there's there's a third book in this trilogy, because that's why they're called trilogies, um, <laughs> is coming out in a few months, probably, I think you said next year. Yeah, um, it's gonna it's gonna come out next year. And it's actually it's going to be more than three books. There will be at okay. least there will be at least four, but most likely more than that. Excellent. Um <laughs> t- tell us the what what's the story behind uh this what's what's your elevator pitch for your series? <laughs> 
Well, uh, the Savior's Champion uh, takes place in the realm of Thessin. It's a very Grecian, uh, you know, inspired world, kind of Grecian, kind of Roman. Um, and it's ruled by this magical holy queen. She basically is the only magical, you know, being in their land. And she healed the world of plague and suffering and all that terrible stuff. Um, and she, you know, that was centuries ago. She's had this lineage of savior after savior after savior, uh, you know, ruling over the land. And every time the newest savior comes of age, there is a massive gladiatorial tournament where the finest bachelors in the realm compete for her hand in marriage. Um, so the story follows Tobias. He is forced to compete in the tournament due to extenuating circumstances. He doesn't really want to be there. He doesn't care about the savior or any of that. Um, and while he's in the tournament, he ends up falling in love, but with the wrong woman. <laughs> so now he's stuck in this deadly tournament. It's not at all what he expected it to be. There's some political manipulation. There's lots of backstabbing and betrayal. And he has to try and find a way to survive the tournament, but end up with the woman he loves, as opposed to getting married off to someone that he despises. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> there's so much there, Jenna. Um <laughs> So um, when you start when you start a book uh, and you you are a, uh, a planner, you you work out. Do, let me ask you this. Do you know how the story is going to end from the beginning? Do, do you? Yes. You map out the whole story before you start drafting. Yes. Uh, for me, it's like uh, completing a puzzle. I like mm -hmm. putting the pieces together into the perfect order. Um, I love outlining. I know a lot of people find it boring. For me, it's just telling the entire story in shorthand. And I think it's it's a, such a power trip. You're like looking at this world you created and you're like, this is mine. <laughs> yeah. So I really enjoy I, I, everything. I mean, obviously, I don't know, every, you know, all the details of every fight scene or, you know, every line of dialogue. I don't know everything. Thing, but I know all the major plot points and I absolutely know the end before I start writing. For me, the end is usually one of the first things that I come up with and it's very exciting. So when you're, when you're in your sort of ideation phase, like this world that you created, how, did the world come first? Did the characters come first? Did the general story come first? Like what was the, what was the first moment where you were like, Oh, this is going somewhere. Well, it's a little bit of everything. And I'll tell you why. Um, I got the idea. I get a lot of my inspiration listening to music. And mm -hmm. I'll listen to a song and just see a story unfold with mm -hmm. the song. And so I was listening to uh, Head Like a Hole, uh, which is a Nine Inch Nails song. Um, I was listening to the AFI cover of it. And I just saw this, you know, uh, underground tunnel with all these men competing in this deadly challenge in order to reach this beautiful woman um, who ended up being kind of evil. Um, so that's just the kinda summary evil. of it. Just a little bit, just a little <laughs> bit. Um, and so uh, I, I saw this sort of image in my mind and it was kind of like, how do I transfer this into a book? So I guess the plot would be the first thing because that is kind of the mm -hmm. general plot of the story. And then I expand from there. You know, I pick a I pick a leading man, I pick a leading woman, and then I build the world around it. I already knew it had to be, you know, gladiatorial Grecian Roman because I'm obsessed with Greek mythology and all that stuff. Um, so it was about, you know, basically I take a concept, I get a, my main character, my, my ship, and then I build everything around it so that mm -hmm. the world, the other characters, the plot points reinforce this general concept that I have. 
Gotcha. So we, so it's like, like a situation. Like yes. Like, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've been talking a lot in the Storycraft Cafe about character development mm-hmm. uh, lately. When So you've got this idea, this plot. You know what's going to happen. How do you go about casting this plot with characters? And, and how – and th- the tack-on question to, to that question is how do you get to know those characters? Um, like – like you're 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 plotting out, you're you're outlining. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. But then in the drafting of it, that's when those characters' personalities really start coming out. So what do you do to get to know these characters? So when when you're speaking for them, it comes off uh, authentically. This is so hard for me to answer only because character creation is my one of my favorite parts of the process. And it's one of those things where it just kind of like spills out of you and you don't really know. Like, it's not like I have a set formula of how I do it. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, that happened, you know? Um, usually what I do is my two main characters, you know, the guy and the girl who are going to fall in love, they are the ones that I spend the most time, you know, crafting. Um, I Because I want to make sure they complement one another, um, mm-hmm. but are not identical. I want them to be opposite enough where it's like two halves of a whole. So all um, I talk about it on my channel, you know, doing character profiles and things like that. I definitely recommend them, but I've been doing this for so long that I'm at a point where like character profiles in my head. Um, um, but it, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of about making sure the characters all sort of complement one another and have a proper place in the story. So quite often I will have an idea of the characters that are needed for the story or the characters that I want to add for the story. And the more I flush them out and build them, I'll realize, okay, these two characters can be combined into one person, or this character doesn't even need to be here at all. Um, originally um, in the Savior's Champion, the the Savior has, um, how many was she? She was supposed to have uh, four sisters. And I realized that I didn't need the fourth. So, you know, I cut her out and now she has three sisters. Um, in terms of, you know, getting to know them, it while I'm plotting the story, I, I sort of make sure that the outlining, the plotting, the world building, it's all getting done at the same time because I want everything to work together in a way that, it, you know, it's all necessary. Um, so while I'm plotting the story, you know, maybe I have this character murders another character. Well, why does this character murder that character? Are they doing it for evil reasons or is it revenge? And I work with the plot points to kind of create characters that make sense for that moment. So it's like, okay, well, Enzo's going to murder this guy because he is, you know, enacting revenge because this guy murdered his boyfriend. And, you know, that's kind of how it works. It's very rare for me to get into the drafting phase. And then I have a character and I realize, oh, what I planned for them is just not working out. But it has happened. Like, do you have a character? Like, I have one character that I'm just like, like, I know all these things about her on paper. Mm-hmm. And then, like, when it comes to actually, like, writing the dialogue and, like, like I feel like I just haven't quite gotten, like, all the way into her head yet. Like, uh-huh. does that happen? Like, do you have sticky characters? That happened with me in the Savior's Champion. It happened with Raphael. And mm-hmm. every time I wrote for him, I'm like, he's so boring. Like, why is he here? <laughs> and, I, and I knew why he was there. He was, you know, the intelligent one. And he needed to be there to help, like, figure things out and, you know, cause some mischief. And I was like, but he's so boring. And his voice just fades into the background. And then I 
stewed over it for eons. And then eventually I realized that, you know, I kind of compared him to the other guys in the group. And I was like, it's because his voice is too similar to this other guy's voice. Um, they were both sort of sweet and nice and calm and, I don't need two of those kind of guys. So I realized yeah, exactly. So I was like, Raphael shouldn't be sweet, nice and calm. I already got that guy. And realistically, if he's an intelligent guy in this life or death tournament and he's seeing that all this crazy stuff is happening, that's, you know, against the rules and it's not what the you know realm was taught to believe he would probably be really grumpy and annoyed and in a bad mood. So I was like, oh, that was the problem. Raphael needs to be a grouch. He needs to just be the person who's like, I hate everything. This sucks. And then once I figured that out, I rewrote every, everything for him. And now he's uh, my, one of the favorite characters in the book. Everyone loves grouchy, grouchy Raph. So and maybe, that was- maybe, maybe that was, maybe that's the issue with your character. Maybe yeah. the voice is too similar. <laughs> um, that actually, I, one of the, articles that I read of yours recently was the one about dialogue and voice and like kind Mm -hmm. of differentiating between characters and that is something that we've talked about in the cafe a little bit of just like how to like like the actual like nitty gritty like how do you capture a character's voice in dialogue and like I don't know do you have any general tips I sometimes like to like say them out loud like I like Uh to my dialogue out loud and like give people different voices but are there sort of specific like dialogue writing things. I know your writing is pretty dialogue dense right. that like make it kind of come alive to you. Um, I always think about the character's personality and their background, first and foremost, uh, that being, for example, Tobias uh, is a laborer. He's not very well off, so he's probably not going to speak as proper as the wealthier characters. Um, I think about their personality in terms of sense of humor, uh, what upsets them, what makes them happy. Um, I've got a lot of funny characters, but they've all got to be different kinds of funny. So Tobias is funny, but in a witty way, you know, it's like a charm. Charming little smart crack here, here and there. Raphael can be funny, but in a pissed off way. You know, it's just it, it, he's unintentionally funny. He's just complaining and saying what people, everyone else is thinking, but no one wants to say. It, it, it's things like that. I, I think a lot of people will write dialogue based on what they think the character needs to say. Uh, to move the story along or what they have seen in the past. You know, for example, I'm doing a video um, soon about how to write action scenes. And I talk Mm -hmm. about how whenever someone gets hurt in an action scene, someone yells, no. (laughs) And it's like, I, you know, (laughs) that doesn't happen in real life. And just because you see that in the movies doesn't mean you need to replicate it in your book. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you don't have to do that. And I think I I read a lot of books where the things that are being said, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen this in like 5,000 other books. It's like, I always advise, think about what you need the character to say, the general concept, you know, maybe that's I love you or no, Um, the general concept. And then you think, how, but how would this person say it? So maybe they're shy and like insecure and maybe they wouldn't say you know, I love you outright. Maybe they'd be like, well, I kind of, sort of, you know, yeah, 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 I like like your hair, uh, you know, and I just thought maybe we could hold hands. You know, like you you have to take the general idea and think about how it would work in that person's mouth, you know, and and that's something that I think if more people did that, we would get less of the no, (laughs) or other cliches. 
Doug uh, in in the chat says, I haven't been in enough fights to the death to know how long my no should be. <laughs> 20 O's. 20 exactly. O's. I always like, second, Doug, so take a deep breath. Yeah. Right. I, I have I've fought to the death many a time. And according to my research, it's one N, 20 O's. And, and here you X's. sit so we right. know how that turned out. Yeah, clearly it's a winning combination. <laughs> you know? You know? Exactly. Um, Speaking of your your trouble with Raphael getting to to really dial in his character um, because he wanted to be a grump and you didn't necessarily want him to be a grump in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it, how do you, you know, it's, it's a funny thing that we think that certain character traits are going to be off putting to readers, but it's only when we embrace their authentic voice that they resonate with readers. And, exactly. and sometimes it's the exact opposite of what we're expecting. What no one wants to listen to someone gripe all the time. Why would why would that be a good character? But it's only when we let the character be themselves that then they connect with readers. Uh-huh. It's such a weird concept to that, and how, how do you walk that likability line? Yes. I yeah. think, I think, well, first of all, no one likes perfection that everyone wants to make the perfect character. And it's like, he's hot, but he's also kind. And he, he, all the women want him, but he doesn't notice that all the women want him and he's smart and he can fight with no training. Everyone wants to create this. No one likes that guy. First of all, because he's not realistic. He's not relatable and it's boring. And, and no, none of us are perfect. We're all flawed to death. And no, so we see humble in real life right and so, so we see someone who's perfect and we're like that's just frustrating because it's i can't relate to this person so i think i think it's the flaws that make readers kind of like the characters and in terms of like for example the reason everyone likes Raphael is because he's such a grouch because everyone's like he's saying what i would be saying in that moment right. i would just be like i quit i want out of this place this sucks you know and everyone relates to him and um and then i have another character delphi who is confident bordering on arrogant um and i wrote her that way because i was like that that's just how she would be you know she's she's a player she gets all the women in the palace she's beautiful she's statuesque she would be a little bit arrogant and she is by far the favorite character she is the favorite character in the series everyone's like i want a friend like delphi or Mm -hmm. i want to date delphi Mm -hmm. and it's you know no one minds the arrogance because they're like well it's deserved, you know, it's warranted. <laughs> and so I, I think it, first of all, it depends on the kind of character you're creating and what your intention with them is. If your intention, for example, is to make them likable and for you to root for them, then I would say balance the positive and negative traits. There should be a little bit more positive than negative and the negative traits that they do have um, should be either relatable or possibly endearing. For example, um, I have a character who, uh, or, or understandable as well. Mm-hmm. I that one. I have a character who um, she's one of the heroines, um, but she she gets a little stab happy. You know, she's a, she's a little murderous, um, and you would think that would turn readers off. It's like she's a heroine and she murders people, but everyone kind of roots for her to do it because she's taking she's taking out guys who are you know, gunning for her, you know, so it's preservation. So you kind of understand where she's coming from with all her violence. Um, Then if you have characters who you want to be likable, but they're bad people, um, because we all, we all love to hate a good villain. um, I would think about it as obviously they're bad. So they should have more negative traits than positive traits, but 
think about how you present the badness, you know, um, give them, give them a voice that's interesting. You know, we see the charming villain, the cocky villain, the funny villain, or just someone who's really engaging to follow. I think really good examples of this are Alex from A Clockwork Orange, who is just an absolute terrible human being, but he's funny and you enjoy his voice, even though he's doing all these horrible things. Or Joe from You, who's like really compelling and fascinating in all of his terribleness, you know? So I, I think you got to think about how how you want readers to feel about them and then craft their voice and pros and cons accordingly. You've got a, a great uh, page on your website, uh, Meet the Cast of the Savior series, and you have character portraits of each mm-hmm. of your main characters with with a little blurb, uh, you know, kind of about those characters. Did did these character portraits and and blurbs about them come after the fact or had you already sort of sketched out characters for your reference during the writing? Um I do face claims like every other writer. I go on Pinterest and I find faces. Um, I like to say I Frankenstein them because I'll be like, it's this guy's hair and this guy's nose <laughs> and this guy's lips. Put it together and you kind of got exactly. It's very rare where I'm like this person, 100% this per- person. Um, I think the only examples of that are Raphael. Again, he's always coming up and uh, the Proctor. They are the only ones where I'm like this exact face is the character. Um, but yeah, I have face claims. I know how they look in my mind. It's just about translating it onto the page. And um, I knew I wanted character portraits uh, because they're a great marketing tool. So I hired Odette A. Bach. That is my artist. I cannot mm-hmm. recommend her enough. She is so easy to work with and just so talented. Um, and I would just give her my Frankenstein pieces and be like, okay, this guy's hair and this woman's eyes and, you know, this person's skin tone. And she just whips it together. And then I use it for marketing, you know, post it on Instagram and in my videos, all that good stuff. Well, she did a fantastic job. I mean, they're they're gorgeous. Yeah, I they're, right now. <laughs> yeah and, and I see some of them on the shelf there behind you. That's uh, oh yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, there we um, go. There's Tobias. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, we have a question from sure. uh, a viewer. I'll just pop it up here. Eileen says, "I was wondering, Jenna, how do you develop characters that are from our world and happen to find themselves in a fantasy world?" How much world comparison is too much? How much tourism is too much? Um, I think this is one of those situations. And again, I'm not um, encouraging you to try to self-insert, but every once in a while, if, if you're not sure if it's too much or too little, I would say, how would I react in this situation? And at what point do you get to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, I just expect that everything's gonna be weird. I would imagine at first, everything's going to be like, what the hell? What is this? Oh my gosh. You know, like I would expect that. And um, so I I think that's normal to include. And if you're ever not sure, just think, how would I react in this situation? Would this, you know, weird me out? Or is this a situation where something new from the fantasy world is exposed, but you're in a life or death situation? In that case, maybe focus on the life and death and marvel at the new thing another time, you know, it's seen so many new things that it's like, then there's that. All right. Exactly. (laughs) And at some some point it's going to get to that. And so you have to ask yourself, how long would it take for me to just become acclimated and be like, Oh, there's a unicorn. What else is new? You know what I mean? So I, I just 
put yourself in the character's perspective. Just, I like to remind people they're supposed to be people, you know? So if you're ever not sure how the character would react, think about people in your real life, think about yourself, you know, think about if, if the character reminds you of your friend, how do you think your friend would react in that situation? You just always comes back to think about your own human experience and the human experience of people around you. And that'll make, that'll bring humanity to the characters. To Eileen's question about tourism, do you, in your world building, do you ever have things that you like so want to include and want to allow people to see that just don't fit? Like, do you have to like stop yourself from kind of going on a little tour just to kind of show up? Yes. Yes. Especially in the Savior's Champion, because half of the book takes place underground. And so I wanted to be like, look at this world I created, but they're underground. So how would I, how, you know, I'm underground, but I'm thinking about, you know, the, the time that I went to that, right? Like it, it doesn't work, you know? So, and that's another thing. Um, I read a lot of books. Obviously this is a big problem in fantasy where someone will just world build and world build to the point where it's like, can we get to the story? So I'm constantly reminding people if it's not relevant in that moment, you can't talk about it. I know you may want to. There were so many things that I wanted to talk about the world, but I couldn't because they were underground. I could describe what underground looks like, you know, but if it's not relevant to the moment, you, 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 you got to scrap it. As much as your heart yearns for more, you, you got to let it go. Yeah. And then you can just use it as marketing, you know, just like give them a little, a little guide, a little. Exactly. Guide, you know, and, pe and people do that all the time. Maps. Yeah, I love that stuff. Right. I exactly. Love to like maps. Give me all the maps. I want to write them. <laughs> exactly. Or if it's a series, it'll, I mean, they're not underground anymore in the Savior series. So now I get to talk about the world because they are above ground and in the world. You know, it's like you, you can save it for another book, guys. It's all good. Jenna, I have a question for you about genre. Mm -hmm. um, you, you obviously write fantasy and you have characters that behave uh, in certain ways. Uh, because it's fantasy, like, mm -hmm. for instance, you have a character that you said is a little stabby. Um, if, this <laughs> a, if this was a political thriller and you had a congresswoman who was a little stabby, um, <laughs> that, that, that would have very different consequences than exactly. you have in a fantasy novel. Mm -hmm. um, what do you feel like your genre, your chosen genre um, affords you uh, as a writer? Um, I, I, one of the reasons that I love fantasy in general is that your options are virtually limitless. You know, if you right. want to make someone fly, you can do that. You just need to create the magic that makes it believable. And that's the thing is literally anything you want to create, you can slap on because magic, magic did it. And right. you have, but you have to be able to explain why and know how the magic works. Um, so, so that's what I love about it is there are no limitations. I also really enjoy sci-fi. It's a little bit more limited than um than fantasy but not by much because with sci-fi it, it's the same idea it's because science <laughs> because the science in the future so if you want to make a person fly you 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 can do that as well but it you, you just got to create some kind of scientific futuristic contraption that made that happen um i i have a friend who who always says the difference between sci-fi and fantasy is what explains the whooshy whoosh and the whooshy whoosh being whatever crazy thing is happening is it science that explains it or is it magic that's always uh, interesting too when you read a fantasy series where the science is or the magic is so well explained that it almost has become science mm -hmm. you know like there's sort right. of this like 
like, yeah, you've gotten it all the way down to like the cellular level or whatever. And now here right. we arrive back at basically science fiction. Like Exactly. And, and that brings us to fantasy sci-fi, which is a blend of both worlds, you know, which is so... Right. These, these are my preferred genres, um, also with romance, uh, because you can get away with so much. You, you know, like I enjoy writing. I mean, I don't know what it says about me, but I enjoy writing my little murder characters and the death <laughs> and things like that. And if I were to do that in contemporary fiction, I couldn't get away with my heroes doing it. You know, I can't. And they'd all have to be relegated to the villains. So speaking of magic systems, do you have a personal philosophy when creating magic in your worlds? Um, I mean, I have a system for my own current world. Um, my personal philosophy or the advice that I give is don't overcomplicate it. Um, I really hate it when I'm reading a book and the magic system is so complicated that I feel like I need to take notes to understand mm -hmm. and follow it. I always say, remember, this is supposed to be entertaining. It's not supposed to feel like homework. Um, and so and that's not to say it's got to be the simplest thing possible, but it's got to be something that if you were to explain it to readers, they could follow and grasp and understand. They don't need to memorize and have flashcards, you know? So that, that's something that I follow. Also, I know some people are very in favor of soft or hard magic. Personally, I think it depends on the character preference. Um, so for example, in the Savior's Champion, we're following Tobias. Um, he's not magical. He doesn't have any magic. The only character who has magic is the Savior. And so he doesn't know how her magic works, you know, because he's not in her body. Um, so that would be more considered more of a soft magic system because whatever the character doesn't know should usually shouldn't be explained to the reader because we're following their perspective. Mm -hmm. It would take you out of the story if suddenly you're explaining things that Tobias doesn't know. In the next book, we're following his love interest, Layla, and she knows everything about the magic system. She is very aware of it. So in that book, it's a hard magic system because I can give those details and explain it because we're following a character who is very closely related to the magic system. So I think I don't personally have a preference between soft or hard. I think it just depends on the character perspective. Speaking oh, of, I'm, I'm sorry, Grace, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask a question about character perspective. Um, when you think about writing first person versus close third person versus a more omniscient third person, I guess, like, what do you think are sort of the pros and cons of choosing a point of view? Um, oh, my goodness. I could go on forever. I know, it's huge. I'll, 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 I'll try to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> my personal favorite is a third person deep, which is mm -hmm. basically like first person, except it's got all the same benefits as first person, except you're using the he, she, uh, they, mm -hmm. them pronouns. Um, so I'm hugely in favor of that, but I will try not to be biased. I think the pros of third person is that you have so many options. Like you said, you could do limited, you could deep, you could do omniscient. You, you've got tons of options. Um, I like that third person has a bit more of a formal voice. So if you have, mm -hmm. uh, if you have a narrative style that you prefer writing in, third person is going to be great because you don't have to change your style to fit a particular character's voice. Um, but the problems with third person are that it's typically seen as harder to write because, you know, there's different kinds of third person. Um, you could, if you, if you choose third person limited, but then you start doing some omniscient stuff, it turns into head hopping. It, it could just be a little bit harder to stay in your lane. Um, with first person, it's considered easier to write because you're using I, me pronouns and it makes it easier for you to put yourself in the character's position because you're saying I and me. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's got more of a conversational feel because the character is telling the story. And if you're really good at character voice, then it's an obvious choice because mm-hmm. you're you're speaking on behalf of the character. Um, I think the biggest con of first person is that if you chose, if, if you, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. If you picked a character voice and the readers don't like that character. It's all over. It's all over. Yeah. And, and that's the biggest complaint I see when people read first person books is I hate the main character. It's so, a gamble. Like if you like that character, like I, yeah. one of my favorite series is, is uh, Deanna Rayborn's Veronica Speedwell series and like mm-hmm. Veronica's voice. Amazing. Love her, you know, like mm-hmm. love her or uh, Laurier King's Mary Russell series. Great voice. And so it's like, that's like what draws me to that series is that it's like right. such a winner of a voice, but then like, the opposite is so also true. Like if I don't like it, it's such a turnoff. Like it's just right. such a, like, well, you're going to like gain some people and lose some people. And it's, there's less neutrality there, I guess. It, exactly. Whereas with third person, if they don't like the main character, obviously that's never a good thing. But <laughs> I, I've seen people who loved a book, even though they didn't like the main character because they liked yeah. the story and they weren't stuck in their voice, you know? It in their was, head. <laughs> exactly. But with first person, if they don't like the main character, you are screwed. That's just, yeah. that's just how it is. I was just uh, flipping back through some of the comments and uh, Jennifer has a question about publishing. And Mm -hmm. this is a fantastic question. Um, Jennifer says, I've been querying one novel for about a year. So I'm wondering where to draw the line at. I may try querying the novel. I just finished polishing and then go indie if that doesn't work. I've talked to a number of authors who wrote one book and tried to get it out to the world. And it just, For whatever reason, it just wouldn't sell. And they just scrap that novel and go write a new one, which is amazing that someone has that kind of fortitude to do that because that that would pain me to my soul. Um, But, (laughs) you you know, how do you how do you judge if the thing you're working on is good enough um, and and is there ever a time where you should completely scrap a project and move on to something new? Uh, and uh, does indie publishing factor into that decision at all? Um, well, I can't speak much for the querying process cause I've never done it myself. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, when's a good number to stop. Um, I've, I've, I, all I know is just friends who have queried their, their numbers when they stopped. I know people who queried a hundred. I feel like if you're in that territory, then that's probably, you should have stopped a while ago. If you've queried a hundred <laughs> agents, I'm just saying that seems triple digits seems like a little too much. Um, I would pay attention if you are getting feedback from agents, I would pay attention to what they are saying, because if the, if the answer is just, this is not marketable or, or this is, you know, not in my wheelhouse, or I already have too much of X, Y, Z, then that doesn't mean the story's bad. It's just a business decision. Um, If they're giving feedback about the story itself, that means you probably have some stuff to work on. I would say that don't consider indie publishing a backup. It's a hundred percent a business decision. I'm an indie published author. It was my first choice. I'm not saying you shouldn't indie publish the book right. if, if you decide to, but I wouldn't look at it as a backup decision because there are a lot of pros to indie publishing, but it's a significant amount of work as well. So don't ever think of indie as like a just a backup 
choice because it's a lot of people's first choice for good reason, you, you know, in part the control and the making a lot of money. Um, so mm-hmm. just that's something to consider. Um, if aside uh, in terms of uh, when you should quit or if you should quit, um, I can't make that choice for you. But if you aren't getting any bites from agents, I would enlist beta readers, critique partners, have people read the book. A lot of people, not just your mom, you know, at least five people. I would aim for 10 or more. Um, have people read it and give their feedback, because if it is a story based issue, you're going to want to know. Maybe you can fix it. And then if traditional publishing is your decision, re-enter the query process, or if you decide indie is a better route for you, especially if the the response from agents is business related, like this is too niche, or I already have enough of this novel. If it's a business decision, then indie might be a good choice because you, you know, you don't have those limitations there. Um, But yeah, I, I would be asking for feedback. If you've been, you know, querying for a year, I would be getting beta readers personally. What is the the proper role for beta readers slash critique readers, uh, in your opinion? Because sometimes you'll you'll have ten people read your book, and you'll get ten completely different responses as to what your book needs. How do you determine what's a valid um, criticism versus what is maybe just not this particular reader's taste? And to, I, oh, sorry. That, like, where in the process do you like to have your beta readers read? Or I guess I, like the reader versus beta reader, like what's right. the differentiation, you know? So I consider a critique partner a writer who critiques a fellow writer who critiques your work. I like to choose writers who have uh, strengths and areas that are my weaknesses, and I have strengths and areas that are their weaknesses, um, and we swap manuscripts. Um, they'll leave comments in the document, they'll leave edits in the document, and they usually include some kind of write up at the end, like, okay, here are the overall problems, and here's where you're really doing well. That's how I define a critique partner. I think you can list them and list them whenever you want. I know people who have people critique their outlines. I think that's overkill, but you know, do you? Um, I have critique <laughs> partners, you know, as early as the drafting phase. You know, while I'm going through different drafts, uh, if I'm uncomfortable with a chapter, I might sh- ship it off to my critique partner. Like, can you just take a quick look? I'm not sure if it's any good. Beta readers to me are readers. They don't have to be writers. They often are not writers. Um, And they are there to give you the reader experience. Um, Was it entertaining? Did they like this character? Did they understand things? Um, I personally think you should enlist beta readers after you have drafted and self-edited the manuscript enough where it's as clean as you can get it without professional help. Um, Because it's going to be easier for beta readers to read the story that way. Typos and stuff are really hard to get through. And in terms of knowing, you know, what to listen to and what to throw out, this is why I think it's really important to have a lot of beta readers because you can look for trends and feedback. If you had five beta readers, I honestly, people will probably not like this, but I usually have over 20. Um, But if you had five beta readers and four of them love the main character and one of them hates the main character, probably not that big of a deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the, uh, the, the numbers are overwhelmingly in favor of loving the main character. But again, I would recommend having 10 to 20 beta readers um, look for trends in the feedback. Usually if three or more people say, have the same negative critique, I take that's when I change things. That's, that's when it looks like it's going to be a problem. Three or more is my magic number. Um, you start and also, noticing patterns. 
And, and I also send all beta readers the same questions so I can compare. Mm-hmm. I always ask them what their favorite part was. Um, I, I, and I send them sections, not the whole book. So I'll send them like four chapters. What was your favorite part? Were there any parts you didn't like? Um, did anything confuse you? Um, and then I will ask them like, what did you think of this character? What did you think of this character? And I ask them their thoughts on the scenes This sounds like a lot, but the reason I do this is sometimes people will be like, I loved it. I loved it so much. And then you'll be like, oh, what are your thoughts on this character? And they're like, I love them. They're my favorite. I'm just rooting for them. And they're the villain. And you're like, oh, crap. You know, so sometimes you need to ask for specifics because sometimes they'll compliment you and they don't realize they misunderstood and you need that information because you did something wrong. You know, now, now I need to go back and make the villain unlikable. They weren't supposed to root for them, you know, so you, you need those specifics. Um, Eileen says, uh, does Jenna have these questions as a printable on your site or do these questions change with, depending on the, the work that you're sending out? Is there a standard that you use? There, the standards are, um, what are your overall thoughts? You know, so if there's anything right on the top of their mind, they can just get it out. What are your overall thoughts? What was your favorite part and why? What was your least favorite part and why? Um, were there any things that you didn't understand or found confusing? And then I go through every character that appeared in that section. What did you think of them? You know, and I go through every scene, you know, what did you think of the fight scene? What did you think of the first kiss? What did you think of the murder? You know, and then I always end things with like on a scale of one to 10 or on a scale of one to five, how much did you enjoy this? Um, If it's something where there's like a plot twist or a whodunit, I ask what their predictions are. And then I say, do you want to read more? Because you want to give them an out if they're not enjoying it. And if they are not enjoying it, that is feedback in itself. If they don't want to read more, that's the feedback. If they don't if they like say, it. If they say, no, this four chapters exhausted me, then right. probably not go. the feedback you're looking for. There, now you know. And again, this beta readers are just readers. They're not here to correct your grammar or anything like that. Right. But they might tell you, you know, the grammar's all messed up, you know. But don't ask them to go through and, you know, give you a copy edit. Yeah. Do you do multiple rounds of beta readers? So you self-edit and then you send it off to beta readers and then you get your feedback back. And then do you then edit again and send it back? Is there kind of like a, how many cycles do you do? I do cycles of 10 readers. And so I will have 10 readers read it. um, And if I'm getting negative feedback or, you know, people are confused about something and it's more than three out of 10, I go back and I do another edit and I make the changes and then I do another cycle of 10. I mm-hmm. usually have uh, two to three cycles. Um, sometimes, usually by the second cycle, mostly everything is taken care of, but sometimes I'm just paranoid and I do a third cycle, right. you know, like, oh, I just, I just want to be sure. So like time wise, how, I guess like everyone's timeline for writing a novel is different Mm -hmm. for you, like start to finish. How long did that first book take? And then this sort of beta reading process, like where in that months long process was that? Like how long did it take? Like kind of what's your, when you are thinking like, okay, I'm writing this next book, life craziness aside, like if everything went to plan, how long would you expect that to take? Well, my debut novel wasn't The Savior's Champion. I had a sci-fi novel out first. Um, I wrote that while I was working full-time. So that took mm-hmm. five years. A lot of people hear five years and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm taking so long. It's like, you got a full-time job. Give yourself a yeah. break. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. 
when I wrote The Savior's Champion, I was writing full time and it's a big book. It's like 160,000 words. Um, and I'm also a caregiver and a YouTuber. So that took uh, two and a half years, which literally half the amount of time as the first book. Um, the next book took about the same amount of time, two and a half years. And is that uh -huh. two and a half years like the ideation to publishing or just to draft? Um, oh, no, not just to draft. It's okay. it, I would say ideation to the professional edit. Um, publishing, I usually have like three months of pre-sale and marketing before mm -hmm. it's officially published. Um, mm -hmm. So that would tack on some extra time. So I'd say two and a half years to start the from the idea I, uh, idea to the prof professional edit being over. Um, it was the same with The Savior Sister. This next book, I have no idea how long it's taken because I've had to take so many hiatuses to right. um, medical situations. But um so for me, the process is usually two and a half years. I'm trying to cut it down shorter. That is that is the goal. Um, I know that a lot of people, they hear about writers who finish a book in a month. That's cool. That's never going to be me. It's just, <laughs> I, I can't do that. It's never going to be me, but I'm, I'm happy for those people. Um, but all that to say, it really depends on your life and every, everything you got going on, it, it, you know, it, and you, you kind of have to be reasonable and easy on yourself if it does take longer. I would say that if it's taking you, if you're in the double digits of years, if you're going on 10 years and more, maybe you're farting around too much, you know, or like spending too much time world building, you got world builders disease, or you're outlining over and over again, maybe chill out and just finish it. So Jenna, um, I'll, I'll ask this, this one question and, and we'll wrap up. But um, in the, in the Storycraft Cafe, we are, um, we, we have a thing called the 500 Club where we're trying to build good writing habits um, in your ideal world when when um, medical things are not going on and things that 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 pull your attention, you know, as they should. Um, do you have a, a daily writing habit? Do you have a, a preferred uh, like I'm going to wake up and by from eight until 10, I'm going to write uninterrupted. Uh, what what does your writing life look like in an in an ideal world? Goal or you know, I I really recommend people create both quarterly goals and short term goals. Quarterly goals being like I'm going to write a hundred pages within the next three months. Um, I think it's good. It's a good amount of time. Three months. It gives you wiggle room in case life comes up, but it also is short enough that it holds you accountable. And then for short-term goals, I usually create weekly goals where I will say I'm going to write, I, I do page goals as opposed to word count goals. Also, I'll say I'm going to write 20 pages this week. And then that gives me wiggle room where if my fiance has a medical situation come up, it doesn't have, the writing doesn't have to get done that day. I can do it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I do it. And then in terms of my writing day, usually it's a full day. I, I'm not one of those who can do sprints. I mean, I can, but I, I don't prefer it. I like to have the whole day of writing. And the way I start my process is I will just write as much as I can. I won't read it because that will just get me paranoid. Like, oh my gosh, I got to fix all the mistakes. Mm -hmm. So I just buckle down and write as much as I can. The next day when I start my writing process, I will go back and reread everything I wrote and the previous day. And, um, and I will make tweaks and edits and things like that. This is not recommended for everyone. Um, some people cannot edit while they go. It just gets them in an endless loop. 
I'm not one of those people. So just letting you know, if this, if this doesn't work for you, that's totally normal. This is just a me thing. But I will edit what I wrote the previous day. Anything that's too big or time consuming, I highlight with a color code of, you know, yellow means it's redundant or blue means that it needs a whole scrap. Um, and then I continue writing more and I write, write, write. I don't read it. And I write until the day is over and the cycle repeats itself the next day. I love the idea of the weekly goals because that allows you room to give yourself some grace if, right. um, you know, if things come up. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> Jenna, this has been so much fun, and this hour just blew by. Um, <laughs> tell folks where where they can find all of your stuff if if their uh, you know interest is peaked and they want to dig into all things Jenna. Well, thank you so much. Um, you can follow me on YouTube. That's the most obvious place. It's youtube.com slash Jenna Moresi. That's M-O-R-E-C-I. Um, I'm available on um, Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, as well as BookBub. You can find me under Jenna Moresi across all platforms. And if you are interested in dark fantasy romance, check out the Savior series. The first two books are available. It's the Savior Champion and the Savior Sister. The Savior Champion was voted one of the best books of all time by Book Depository humble brag so hey, definitely hey. definitely check it out and <laughs> and the savior's army is on its way so third book is coming out soon hopefully <laughs> thank you jenna this has been so much fun thank you i've had a blast Thank you.